If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Southcrest Baptist Church. Services are 8 a.m., 9.30, and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings and 6 p.m. on Wednesdays. We're located at 3801 South Loop 289 in Lubbock, Texas. If you can't join us in person, be part of our online congregation at southcrestlive.tv to stream our Sunday services live at 9.30 or 11. For more information, visit our website at southcrest.org. This week on Southcrest Live, featuring Dr. David Wilson, we continue our study called Hope, a series in 1 Peter. We're in chapter 4 today, verses 1 through 3, where Peter calls believers to renounce sin. But why is it so difficult to renounce, to even recognize? Why do we sugarcoat it with words like mistake, struggles, or errors in judgment? Well, the Apostle Peter gives us some sound words of counsel on breaking sin's stranglehold and making a fresh start. Let's take a closer look with this week's message, Breaking the Grip of Sin, from Pastor David Wilson. 1 Peter chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. He, last week, we talked about Jesus suffering and dying and, and all that he had gone through. And now that the angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him, seated at the right hand of God. And he talks about how Jesus suffered and died for our sin. And then the very first word in verse 1 of chapter 4 is therefore. So he's about to tell us something to do. Would you stand while I read God's word for three verses? Therefore. Since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his life, the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Lord, we ask you today to convict us of our sin. To help us get a grip on what sin really is. And then help us break the grip of sin. We know that you've defeated it. We ask God that you would have victory in people's lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You've heard the statement, seen the posters. Today is the first day of the rest of your life. The good thing about God is that no matter when you come to him, he hasn't written you off and he doesn't hold your past up to you. He says, this is the spot. You start and you go from here. Little Jason had been a naughty boy and his mom sent him to the room with this admonition. You go upstairs and pray to the Lord to make you a better boy. So little Jason drug himself upstairs. He kneeled at his bedside and he reluctantly prayed, Lord, please make me a better boy. But if you can't, I'm really happy the way I am. <laughs> a lot of people feel that way. 
There were a group of Sunday school teachers, especially in the children's department, that went to some training, and they all seemed to come back with the same teaching method where they would tell a Bible story, and then they would tell the children the moral of this story is, and then there'd be a long dissertation on the moral of the story. And it was kind of boring to the kids, and all of them did the same thing except for Miss Brown. Miss Brown didn't agree with that kind of method, and she did her own thing. She had a fresh approach. She, had, she was different for the children, and they loved her for it. Everybody liked Miss Brown because of her teaching. And finally, one of her, well, one little boy's mom said, why do you like Miss Brown so much? And you can imagine the shock when the little boy said, oh, we love Miss Brown because she has no morals. You know what a euphemism is? It comes from the Greek word euphemismo or uh, mismos, which means good speech. And it's in the idea of substituting a pleasant word for an unpleasant word. Such as, instead of saying, I got fired, you would say something like, I now have a career change opportunity. Or if you're a used car salesman, you don't say used cars, you say pre-owned vehicle. That's a euphemism. There's a word that we don't like to use in this society, and you're not going to like it. You don't like it either. It's, it's the word sin. Nobody likes to talk about sin. Unfortunately, we have replaced the word sin with a lot of other words, mistakes, struggles, accidents, errors in judgment. Instead of saying, I sinned, it's easier to say, well, I just slipped or messed up. There are euphemisms, some common synonyms for sin, such as stretching the truth instead of saying lying, living together or hooking up instead of calling it fornication and Sex outside of marriage, Hebrews 13, 4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. It's easier to say an affair instead of saying I committed adultery. I drink a little too much instead of saying I'm, a drunk, I'm in the sin of drunkenness. It's easier to say I'm, I'm sharing some news instead of the sin of gossiping. You see, we have all kinds of euphemisms for our sin. We don't want to call it that anymore. And today in our culture, sin is not an acceptable word. You don't hear a lot of people talking about it. Not only is it an unacceptable word, it's an unacceptable cause for the troubles of man. We don't blame man's troubles because of their sin. And with all this talk of values and no talk about sin, then the definition of values becomes very vague we look at the world and what do we see? We see evil everywhere, but it's not defined as evil. We see sin everywhere, but it's not defined as sin. We see, it's not an acceptable word. It's not an acceptable diagnosis. In fact, things that we used to say willingly were sin, we don't want to call sin anymore. A long time ago, 1992, August 29th, Dallas Morning News. Now, I'm quoting from the Dallas Morning News August 29, 1992, and a columnist, Ann Melvin. She died in 2010. 
But she wrote this column. Maybe she died in 2000. I can't remember. I didn't read her column because I don't get the Dallas Morning News. But I did find this quote by her. And it's interesting that on this particular day in that Dallas Morning News, she talked about sin. And here's what she said. Quote, most sins have gained respectability through politics and profitability. They're mostly all legalized, advertised, organized, supervised, and taxed. We've got liquor by the drink, young girls dressed like hookers just to be in fashion at their homecoming dance. We've got your basic graphic sex on cable TV and an entertainment market from wind-up toys to electronic state-of-the-art based solely on violence. So, hey, is it fair to name all these little diversions sins? Sin. Go figure out how you can make a fortune for Time Warner with a recording about killing cops. How you can refuse to let school children say grace for lunch and then teach them how to use a condom before recess. Clearly, we're foundering here a society preoccupied with values, yet hopelessly vague on sin. The politicians don't want to talk about it because they don't want to alienate any sinning votes. Entrepreneurs and materialists don't want to talk about it because they can sell it. The government doesn't want to talk about it because they can tax it. But it's really amazing that even people who are supposed to be helping other people, psychologists and psychiatrists and counselors and helpers, they don't want to talk about sin either because it doesn't sell very well. Sickness sells better. Addiction is a much nicer word than iniquity. Peter knew that the Christian life was a war. And so he begins in verse 1 by saying, arm yourselves. And folks, today I want to tell you, I don't stand here as a sinless one. I am a sinner saved by grace just like you. So I don't condescend to you at all. But I want you to know that when you follow Jesus Christ, there should be a difference in your life. And because we've become so desensitized to our sin and culture has accepted so much of it, many of us have watered down our Christianity and instead of being on a battleground against the forces of evil, it's like we're on a playground enjoying Jesus. Well, I'm for enjoying Jesus, but I also want you to know that Satan wants nothing more than to destroy you. And consequently, we wonder why people are having trouble in their marriages and in their families. They're having troubles in their, in their daily walk. It's because we don't call sin what it is. Today, you won't like this message. It says to arm yourselves in verse 1. Arm yourselves with the same mind. You see... That, that word means to put on the armor. You're not going out to play. You're going out to fight. You're going out to, to survive. You ever been in a dark restaurant? You know, when dimly lit? I, I've discovered that the more dimly lit they are, the more expensive they are. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that? Partly because they don't want you reading the menu. It's too, oh my gosh, is it that, that expensive? Well, you can go in a dimly lit restaurant and it looks all wonderful until your eyes adjust. And then you start to see, well, gosh, there's dirt on the floor and there's trash here and the walls are scratched and so forth and so on. It's not nearly as romantic as you thought it was because your eyes have adjusted to the dark. We have done the same thing with sin. We've become so adjusted and so desensitized to sin that we get used to it without even realizing it. We don't even realize what we've done. 
Most people don't want a remedy for sin. One church member asked his pastor, doesn't it make you nervous preaching on sin with all those experts sitting out there in the congregation? (laughs) So how do we break the grip of sin? It starts with our comprehension. Verse 1. This war is won or lost in our minds. I want you to change your mind today. I want you to change your thinking about what you're doing. We're to have a militant attitude towards sin because it's destructive. Sin is deceptive. It brings decay. It brings death. And you and I are supposed to be vigilant and diligent. In fact, he goes back to chapter 1, verse 13. He says, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. Think about what you're doing. He's going to use it again in chapter 5. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking you. Seeking who he can eat down is the word devour. So our comprehension here has two parts. First of all, I call the first one perception. You need to realize what sin did to Jesus. You just sang about what sin did, the blood of Christ. We sang that together. And you need to understand that if you're going to be armed with the same mind, you're going to have to look back at what Jesus has done. He suffered again. Here's that word again. We just saw it in, the, in verse 18 of chapter 3. He suffered. He died a horrible death. He had to suffer and die this horrible death for one reason, sin. Now think about this. Is there any such thing as a little sin because Jesus had to die for it. Oh, that changes everything, doesn't it? You see, we've got our list. We've got the big, medium, and small, and the minute, and the okay sins in our life. Jesus dealt with the ignorance of sin by teaching the truth and living it He dealt with the consequences of sin by forgiving our sin, and he dealt the final blow to sin on the cross. And when we accept him, we are no longer under the power of sin. We've been given a new life. The old way of life is gone. And when we don't call sin what it is, we short-circuit the need for forgiveness, and we thus take away the necessity for the blood of Jesus Christ as the payment for our sins. Jesus didn't come to help me manage my mistakes. He didn't come to unpack my baggage or to help me have my best life now. He came to forgive me of my sin. He came to die for my sin. And he died in my place as my substitute because my sin was so foul and so rancid and so repugnant that it separated me from a holy God. I want you to see your sin put Jesus on the cross. That changes it all, doesn't it? It's not quite so innocent anymore when it helped Jesus suffer. The second part of this comprehension is preparedness. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Some people believe that's talking about Jesus. He suffered in the flesh, which he did. And he has ceased from sin. You're going, wait a minute. How could Jesus cease from sin when he didn't ever sin? Well, the word cease means rest from sin, which you think about it. Whenever Jesus entered the world, sin was attacking him. 
Satan was attacking him. He tried to kill all the baby boys when he was born. And, and he was tempted. And all the time that Jesus was here on earth, the forces of evil were tempting him, attacking him. Sin was relentless toward him. He did not sin. And so when he died, he rest from all of that. Possibly, I don't go there, but here's the reason. And I believe that's true, but I don't believe that's what Peter is saying because Peter's talking about Jesus suffered and died. And then he talks about us living our lives and getting away from our past. And so what is he saying here? Here's what I think he's saying. I think it's similar to Romans chapter 6. Verses four through six, listen to this verse. We were therefore buried with him through baptism, not water baptism, but spiritual baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the father, we too may have a new life. If we have been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin. When you repented of your sin, asked God to forgive you, placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you died with Christ, spiritually speaking. You were resurrected with Christ, spiritually speaking. His life lives in you. You're given his righteousness. You died to sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you. You rest from it. Do we still sin? Yeah. Why? Probably from habit. But sin cannot make you do anything. Yeah, there's a war going on and there's all kinds of battles with the world and the flesh and the devil. But unfortunately, many, many believers don't see themselves as being on a battlefield. They think, well, hip, hip, hooray for Jesus. I'm on a playground with Jesus. Now, I'm not knocking the joy in the Lord. Please understand me. But I want you to see the seriousness of your Christian walk. It's not just coming every now and then to church and go, man, I love church and I love the music and I love the worship. And then going home and nothing changes. That's not Christianity. That's churchanity. And a lot of people got their churchanity, but they don't have Christianity. And so it says we're to arm our minds. We're in a spiritual battle. It begins up here. I want you to think differently today about your little sins. Now, so it starts with our comprehension. But when that begins to happen and you give your life to Christ, it shows in our conduct. There will be a change in your life. What a wonderful change in my life has been wrought since I joined South Crest Baptist Church. Or any church for that matter. Or since I took communion. Or since I got baptized. No, since Jesus came into my life. There's a couple of things that are going to happen here. First of all, there's a change in your allegiance. Look at verse 2. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh. For the lust of men but for the will of God. I want to tell you, that is a powerful 
sentence. No longer is a perfect tense. Perfect tense means something happens at a point in time and the effects keep on going. So something happens in your life no longer. There's a no longer. And it keeps on being no longer and no longer. And the word live is the only place you find it here in the New Testament. And it basically saying there's a life that is no longer an option for me. Because I've come to Christ who suffered and died for my sin. I've armed myself with the same mind. And there's no longer a point in time I give my life to Christ. And no longer am I going to live this kind of life. Y'all got that? Say amen every now and then. Even if you don't like sin. The fact is, there's a lifestyle that's no longer an option. And then did you notice that little phrase, the rest of our or his time? How much time you got left? How much time you got left? Do you know? You don't really know, do you? I know some of you are looking at your watch. There's not much time left on this sermon. That's not what I'm talking about. How much time do you have left? The rest of your time. Now, I want to tell you that even if God gives you another 50 years, and, and, and that's not going to happen for some of us, because some of us have already spent a lot of our time, and we don't have a lot of rest of our time, do we? But I don't know when I'm going to die, so I don't know how long the rest of my time is. But all of us in here have that phrase, the rest of your time. What are you going to do with it? And did you know that even if God lets you live 100 years, have you thought about how minute that is in eternity? Well, I got to live it up. I don't have a lot of time left. Oh, yeah, you got an eternity left. You got to decide where you're going to spend eternity, but you're going to live forever. You are. But the rest of your time on earth, I've got some good news for you. No matter what you've done, no matter how much you've wasted, you know what God says today? He says, you can put a marker down today, and the rest of your time now you can serve me. Isn't that awesome? He doesn't say, well, sorry. You blew it. You've wasted too much of your past life. And you know what? You're a hopeless case anyway. I've already written you off. No, 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 no. God says, you know what? If you put a marker down today, the rest of your time, you got a choice. So my question to you today is, what are you going to do with the rest of your time? You got two choices. You're either going to live for the Lord or you're going to live for the moment. You're going to live for lust. You're going to live for the Lord. That's what he's saying. No no more time for the lust of men, but for the will of God. You see, the main difference between our lives and those who don't follow Jesus, we live for eternity. Everyone else lives for the moment. Those without God, this is as good as it's ever going to be. Those with, with Jesus, we're looking for a better place, aren't we? And no matter what it is, no matter how long I've got here on this earth, I still can live for the Lord. Do y'all remember the movie? And if you haven't seen it, I'm not recommending a movie. But if you've seen the movie Forrest Gump, Forrest, I'm not a smart man. You know what I'm talking about? Well, Forrest, it's an amazing story. I mean, it's not a true story, but he's a slow learner. And in the movie, he accomplishes some amazing things because he's too dumb to know he can't do it. 
Well, after playing on a college football scholarship, he enlisted in the army. And in the army, he excelled. In one scene, the recruits are standing or being timed. They're they're being timed to see how fast they can reassemble their weapons. And Forrest Gump does it faster than anyone else. And his drill sergeant comes up and says, Gump, why did you put that rifle together so quickly? Forrest says, because you told me to, drill sergeant. (laughs) And in another scene, the soldiers are in attention, and the drill sergeant screams in Gump's face, Gump, what is your sole purpose in this army? Forrest replies, sir, to do whatever you tell me, drill sergeant, sir. And the drill sergeant says, Gump, you are an absolute genius. This is the most outstanding answer I have ever heard. That's supposed to be our attitude toward God. We're here to do whatever God tells us to do. If God should ever ask you to love somebody that's hard to love, why are you going to love them? Because God told you to. You're supposed to forgive somebody that's hard to forgive. Why are you going to do it? Because God told me to. You're going to serve in an area that you didn't think you could. Why are you going to do it? Because God told you to. Our attitude should be yes, because you told me to, Heavenly Father. It's a change of allegiance. Peter reflected this concept as he urged his friends to no longer allow their lives to be dominated by human desires. And so that's why he says not only is there a change of allegiance, but there'll be a change of actions also. Verse 3. Can you remember where you came from? I'm not talking about where you were born. Can you remember where you were before you met Jesus? Some of us have been Christians so long, we've forgotten what it's like to be lost. God told Israel, I want you to remember Egypt. I want you to remember where you came from. They'd once been slaves in Egypt in Deuteronomy 5, 15. He re- Paul remembered that he'd been a persecutor of believers in 1 Timothy 1, 12, and it encouraged him to do even more for Christ. And sometimes we forget the bondage of sin and remember only the passing pleasures of sin. We've forgotten what it's like to be separated from God, to not have any hope, any direction, any peace, any joy. And so Peter says, listen, you folks, and he's talking to Christians under persecution. You folks that are being persecuted, you remember Jesus suffered and died, and you're going to be suffering, and you're going to be having a hard time, but don't go back to the former life. He says, you've spent enough of your past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles. And he mentions six activities that characterize the lost world. Notice them quickly with me. New King James translates it lewdness. It's licentiousness. Aselgia is the word license. It's unbridled, lustful excess. It, it, it uh, pictures a permissive, loose morality. It refers to shameless sexual excess and an insatiable desire for pleasure. Peter uses this word in 2 Peter 2.7 when he describes filthy conduct of the people of Sodom. 
Isn't it amazing how licentious our nation is? What's even more distressing to me is the number of people who call themselves Christians, claim to be lovers of Christ, that support this kind of stuff. Why on earth would you ever want to see 50 shades of gray or any of that garbage? Why would you even open your mind to that? Because in our society, we've gone crazy. When the statistics show that the majority, I don't know about the majority, but a lot of men who are addicted to pornography, it's a sin. It's the same kind of addiction as cocaine. It's been proven. To get out of that addiction, you need help. And you know what? Help's available. And we may start offering some help from time to time. And even if you're not addicted, it still would be good for men to come to these classes to show what you can combat and help others who are in it. See, the hardest part is getting us to admit we're sinners. See, I want you to change your mind about it. Licentiousness, lust. Now, when I say the word lust, you immediately think sexual desire, but actually it speaks of all kinds of evil desires that are from the flesh. A lust is an excessive desire or out-of-control passion. Lust. You know what it means. We don't think it's sin. A lot of young people today don't think it's sin. You've been fed a bunch of lies. It is sin. And then I think it's interesting that the next three mentioned, all three of them have to do with alcohol. Hmm, drunkenness. Only time you find that word right here, this particular word in the New Testament, it means to bubble over to overflow. I did a, a search last night. I don't... I don't use Google anymore. I don't believe Google is the right way to do it. So I use DuckDuckGo. <laughs> Seriously. No, no, no advertisements. They don't trace what you do. And Google's liberal anyway. That was free. I didn't intend to say that. <laughs> but I searched last night. I just typed in the word alcohol and youth. That's all I typed in. First thing that came up, I don't know if it was a government organization or whatever, but here's what came up. I'm going to read some of it to you. First thing, alcohol is a leading cause of death among youth, particularly teenagers. Are you listening to me in the venue? It contributes substantially to adolescent motor vehicle crashes, other traumatic injuries, suicide, date rape, and family and school problems. Every day on average, every day on average, 11,318 American youth, 12 to 20 years of age, try alcohol for the first time. 
compared with 6,400 for marijuana, 2,700 for cocaine, and 386 for heroin. Alcohol is by far the most used and abused drug among America's teenagers. According to a national survey, nearly one-third, 31.5% of all high school students reported hazardous drinking, five drinks in one setting or more during the 30 days preceding the survey. Children who are drinking alcohol by seventh grade are more likely to report academic problems, substance abuse, delinquent behavior in both middle school and high school. By young adulthood, early alcohol use was associated with employment problems, other substance abuse, and criminal and other violent behavior. Young people who began drinking before age 15 are four times more likely to develop alcoholism than those who began drinking at 21. More than 1,700 college students in the United States are killed each year. About 4.65 a day as a result of alcohol-related injuries. How do the children learn about alcohol? They're watching mom and dad and grandparents and all of it consume it like it's crazy. Now, listen, I know I'm stepping on a lot of toes. But you listen to me. I know that Jesus turned water into wine. There's a debate whether it was fermented or not. We're not going to go there. And I know that Jesus turned water into wine. And I've heard him called the master distiller, which is a lie because it wasn't distilled. It's a natural fermentation problem. If you don't know the diff, uh, not process, and if you don't know the difference, you don't know what you're talking about. You know what? Wine doesn't bother me. I don't drink wine because I think all of it's associated. I, I personally, I just can't. And I don't. I'm not putting down people who do. But all this other alcohol, every time that kind of alcohol is mentioned in the Bible, it's negative. Every time. Not the wine. Every other alcohol, period. It's negative. It's dangerous. You're, you're grown-up people. You can do whatever you want. But I am tired of people saying, well, I'm under grace. And grace says we can do anything we want. You know what? Grace doesn't say you can do anything you want. It says that you are freed from the legalism of, of the law. But you are saved by the grace of God. And you need to use that liberty not as a license and folks, let me tell you, every time you do something, you're affecting the rest of your time and you're also affecting the eternity of other people. Heaven forbid that I ever lead one of my children to become drinking and lead them into hell. They're watching me. And so if you need to stop and look at who's watching you, the next word's revelry. I'll get off of this. I've already made, there's no amens going on. Revelries, it means wild feasting. It means carousing, late night, merrymaking, all the way to orgies. And it has to do with alcohol. Drinking parties is the next one. It's when people get together and drink. And we're not talking soft drinks. Three of those, six are alcohol-related. I don't stand here condescending to anybody. But folks, let me ask you something. When Peter's talking about past life and half of the six 
indications of the, of the Gentile or the people without Christ attitude has to do with alcohol. Do you think there might just be something to it? Really? Abominable idolatry. You know what? You think you're off the hook. You'll really love this one. It's the worship of idols. Oh, good. I don't have any little Buddhas at my house, and I don't have any little statues of icons and stuff. That's not all he's talking about. Did you know that anything that comes before God is an idol? It could be good things. Again, I want to ask you parents and grandparents, what are you teaching your children You see, nowadays it seems that there are so many, I've forgotten my word. What happens when schedules collide? Conflicts, thank you. There's so many conflicts on Sunday. A day that we set aside as Christians to honor the Lord. Now, I'm not talking about your vacation. Every now and then you go, and even then you can watch us online. There's no excuse now. (laughs) But here's here's the deal. Isn't it amazing how many conflicts now are on Sunday, and they're good things. There's nothing wrong with some of this stuff that we let our kids be involved in, but it seems like every time there's a conflict on Sunday, what do we give up? Church. Yeah, I'm convicted. I'm passionate about it. I'm tired of seeing people say, well, you know what? We can miss church. We can go do this and do this and do this and do this. And then we wonder why our kids don't go to church when they grow up. It's because we aren't thinking we've let it become an idolatry. And it's time to wake up. And you'll just have to forgive me for the passion I feel about it. People wonder why their kids walk away from God. It's because they didn't ever model it in the first place. And it aggravates the stew out of me that they had that marathon last Sunday morning right out in front of our church. Why can't they do it on Saturday? No, we'll interrupt too many businesses. Well, I've already already offended half of you in here, so I'm just going to keep on going. (laughs) Romans 13. Romans 13, 13 says, let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and in drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. You ever stop to think about what other cultures think? We think we live on the best nation on the planet, but we're blind to our own national faults. After September 11, Americans were shocked to find out that other people didn't like our culture. Several years ago, a Christian organization asked some Muslim students in the Middle East what they thought about America. These aren't radicals. These are just Muslim students. And the clarity and honesty of their answers may surprise you. One, America, Americans have two things on their mind, money and sex. Another answer, in America, mothers prefer to work than to take care of their children. 
Another answer, in our culture, the parents take care of the children, and later the children take care of the parents. In America, children abandon their parents. Another answer, America used to be a Christian country. Now atheism is the official religion of the West. Another answer, your TV shows are disgusting. You're corrupting the morals of our young people. Sin is so much more than these six areas that are mentioned. It's sin is basically a self-centered attitude that puts you at the center of your own little universe. And that's where we are as individuals. That's where everybody is. It's all about me and how I feel and my rights. And it's all my little universe. And 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness and faith. Love and peace along with those who call on the Lord. And once you become a Christian, does it mean you become sinless? But it does mean you will sin less. Augustine's probably one of the most influential Christians in the history of Christianity. He didn't become a Christian until he was 32. Before he had lived a life that was wicked in Carthage and then later in Milan, he was known to have spent time with prostitutes. After he became a Christian, he was walking down the street in Milan when a familiar woman approached him. He immediately turned to walk away. And as he did, she said, Augustine, Augustine, it's me, it's me. And as he hurried away from her, he said over his shoulder, I know, but I am no longer me. That's what makes the difference, folks. Christians run from sin. They don't excuse it. Today is the first day of the rest of your time on this earth. What are you going to do? Let's pray. If we're ever going to break the grip of sin, we must understand that the war is won first in our minds by acknowledging what our sin did to Jesus and that victory comes through Him. We then change our conduct by first changing our allegiance, surrendering to the will of God. The natural byproduct of doing this will be an about-face that not only changes our actions, but also frees us from the dominance of sin over our lives. We appreciate you joining us for the Southcrest Live podcast with Dr. David Wilson, and hope that you'll join us again for next week's message.